Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist-activist of the show, economist and United Nations diplomat Ben Slay. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hooksprung and Rick and Henny Newman. And to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominie Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family. Jonathan Winters. A Snap Sessions Tribute. Did you ever undress in front of a dog? I'll tell you. You think about that for a minute. I don't know, people, you know, it's funny. A, a bird, a bird somehow doesn't count, right? Or a cat. But a dog, they really stare. I, I was just come out of the shower, and here was my dog. You know they can't talk, right? It's the way they look at you, that. And wagged her little tail, went out and told her friends what she'd seen. That was Jonathan Winters, one of the greatest comics in American history, performing a routine in the late 1950s. He was already pushing the boundaries of comedy. With a career spanning more than six decades, Winters was an improvisational comic, a character comic, and a master of vocal sound effects, and possessed an incredibly elastic and expressive face. He appeared in hundreds of television shows and dozens of films, making his mark on broadcasts as varied as The Steve Allen Show, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and as Robin Williams' baby dad, Mirth, on Mork and Mindy. Beginning in 1960, Winters recorded many classic comedy albums for Verve Records and received eight Grammy nominations for Best Comedy Album. Jonathan Winters was born in Ohio in 1925, and like many comics, he had a difficult and often lonely childhood. He was the son of an insurance agent who he was named for and a mom who ended up passing him on to her parents. Jonathan later described his dad as an alcoholic who had trouble holding a job and said he was raised mostly by his maternal grandparents. During these years, he spent a huge amount of time alone in his room making up characters and sound effects. Being funny allowed him to escape his problems, and he often used his comedic skills to entertain his high school friends. 
At the age of 17, he quit high school, joined the Marines, and was trained as an anti-aircraft gunner who ended up in the Pacific Theater shooting at kamikazes in the Battle of Okinawa. When Winters returned from the war, he briefly attended Kenyon College and then moved to Dayton Art Institute, where he studied cartooning and developed skills in the visual arts. There he met Eileen Schauder, whom he married in 1948 and with whom he would spend the next 60 years. A few years later, she gave Jonathan her blessing to pursue his dream to go to New York City and try his hand at performing. I went to New York for $56.46. I was scared to death. Oh, I wanted him to go. My goodness, to be stuck in Ohio the rest of our lives. I knew he could, he could do it. I didn't have any contacts. I just uh, knocked on a lot of doors and um, a lot of it was luck. It was soon obvious Winters had a different approach to comedy than many of his contemporaries. His earliest network television appearance was in 1954 on Chance of a Lifetime, hosted by Dennis James on the Dumont Television Network, where he was billed as Johnny Winters. In those early days, Winters was blazing a trail for a new technique called improv comedy. He quickly earned fame for his ability to improvise with anything handed to him. In fact, he is the godfather of the improv game Props, where an improviser is given an object and has to do a spontaneous routine with it. Winters proved to be an early master of the format. I've got a surprise gift for you. Oh? Yeah. It's a carpenter's folding ruler, silly funster, and it's for you. Well, there's just one hang-up. I, uh, I'm not a do-it-yourselfer, and I, I'm not much of a carpenter. Hang-up schmang-up, sir. <laughs> Come, Mr. Winters. I've seen you do all kinds of things with a stick and a piece of cloth. If you don't like the ruler, make it into something else. Ho, ho, and a Merry Christmas. Oh, inventive funster. And a happy ad libby ho, ho, ho. And a hi-ho to you, steve <laughs> Your little bundle of joy from Christmas? These are wood nymphs coming through the... The snow. <laughs> Hello, Roger Baker, Abel Fox. Sorry, I had to run it up a little higher. Oh, Paul, uh, Abel, uh, Princess June, Mary uh, Baker, uh, Redgrass. <laughs> We're trying to get through. Hello. Uh, uh, tough break, Ed. <laughs> Gee, my new rod and reel. Got one on, Margaret. Play that rascal, huh? <laughs> They're fun to catch, aren't they? <laughs> Get it, Margaret. Go ahead. What could you do if I gave you a stick? <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> I can just get my hands on it. <laughs> do something with a stick. Watch you do a routine with a stick. You can give him anything. Well, that was a pretty good cast, wasn't it, Bob? I think we're on to something this time. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Margaret. Try to swim in. <laughs> Send in those big cats. <laughs> uh, send in the smaller ones. 
I should like to play for you now an old tune that I played when I was in Vienna. It's called Und steile beatzekühne Lachtine verarne which means along the river we go. <laughs> Imagine what I could do if I had the other part. Doctor, I'm not kidding. I've seen them beetles and this is one of their feelers. Start the oven route. The United Nations now recognizes the delegate from Nasserland. The stick routine on Jack Parr brought the house down, and from about 1960 onwards, Winters increasingly became a big star on late-night comedy shows. His kind of observational comedy was different, and his perspective was his own. Here, he and his wife Eileen share some observations on those early days. I think he's like a sponge, and he absorbs everything around him, and then it comes out in his own unique style. Listen, Annie, doggone you, I told you not to leave that kid out there on the beach so long. I have little tiny cassettes in here and little files that I file up in here, and I, I call them from time to time when I feel that I need them. Things come out of him, and I don't know that he ever even knew these things. But somewhere, maybe when I wasn't there, I, uh, he's been exposed to these things and absorbed them and maybe 30 years later it comes out. Well, Colonel, do I get to go ashore tonight or don't I? <laughs> he always said, I'm going on stage tonight, I have no idea what I'm gonna say. Oh my God, I don't know what I'm gonna say. And you get out there and it just starts coming and rolling and rolling and I'm thinking, where is it coming from? That's the reason I love improvisation. Uh, long before anybody else criticizes you, long before your audience in front of you. This is your challenge, this is your baby. And um, uh, you can't blame it on writers, you can't blame it on direction, you can't blame it on the camera guy, makeup, uh, etc. It's you, you're on, you gotta do it. And uh, you either sink or swim with what you've got. Winters produced a series of well-received comedy albums starting in 1960 with The Wonderful World of Jonathan Winters followed by Humor Seen Through the Eyes of Jonathan Winters, Down to Earth, Here's Jonathan, Another Day, Another World, Whistle Stopping with Jonathan Winters, Jonathan Winters' Mad, 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 Mad World, and then, in 1968, Jonathan Winters' Wings It. His was indeed observational comedy. But his own style of observation, sharpened by working clubs like the Hungry Eye in San Francisco and the Bitter End in New York. As far as new frontiers. <laughs> I can't tell you too much. I can tell you Jackie's fine. And we're all fine right here. You know, I was thinking, I don't know why Kennedy came to mind, but... but 
It's almost a Walter Brennan, if you think about it. You know, Walter Brennan talks like this, Dan, down in the valley. And if you sort of change it a little to Kennedy and Frontiers, going ahead as far as the campaign goes, I, you know, it's pretty close. Tell you a funny twist, Walter Brennan is a Republican. This is what throws him. I used to go pretty fast, you know, and throw lines out like this, but I find occasionally you have to slow down. Of course, there's the thing about going too slow. You know, when you start talking like this, I sometimes think that's how the South lost the war, you know, speaking maybe too slow. <laughs> hey, Charlie, I believe that. Hell, yeah, we've got to surrender. But I didn't mean to offend any Southerners, believe me. Winters especially excelled at character comedy, and he had a treasure chest of oddballs to pull from. There is German rocket scientist Dr. Werner. I'm just run out of names. Titan, Saturn, Minuteman, then Jupiter. They're picking on the galaxies. We can't get up there, so we bring them down here. Slap him on one of those things and... <laughs> I brought up a simple name. Wilbur. <laughs> and the guy said, why Wilbur? I said, why Wilbur? Wilbur and override. They wouldn't buy Wilbur. But they bought Orville. <laughs> Why? Do you know why? It was sponsored by General Mills. It was called Orville in Orbit. That's when I said, What does that mean, sir? Out the other side of the tunnel. And then the fabulously wacky old lady, Maudie Frickard one of Jonathan's all-time favorite characters. Well, how did you get your start? Well, I tell you, my eldest brother, Roger Maynard, Gene, I'll never forget, but you see, the three names, we didn't know what the devil to call him. He was, we thought he was a girl for the first year. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, Mama didn't know. Toward the end, she did. But at any rate, he was a little off, I think is the term. He never hurt nobody. But he used to wander a lot, you know, and, and he used to run up to a groundhog and say, in May, it's the first of February. <laughs> he had a funny sense of humor. And one day, One day he said to me, Marty, I'm gonna fly. Honest to Pete, I'm gonna fly. I said, I believe you can, Maynard. I've seen you do a lot of wild things. I think you can do this. We went up to Willard's Bluff, oh, good two and a half miles back our place. You passed by the little house with a half moon there. And we got up over the hill and he'd go up to a cow and say, Hi there, Mr. Cow. <laughs> Strange humor. <laughs> and 
He always had a little message, you know. Would turn to a bunny and say, Hi, Fox. <laughs> uh, this is why we kept him around cutting the grass a lot. He also did a fabulous Ivy League ad agency type. This is genuine madman satire from the madman era. This is my interpretation of an ad man. Well, I don't know about this Nestle account. I just can't seem to get through to those guys at all. God knows we've got about a quarter of a million dollars tied up in this thing. And I'm not kidding, Dink. I'm just out of my skull as to what to do. I just, I don't know, I can't take it anymore. I mean, this thing of commuting is just, is too much. And I've had to take the train, and now it's drive a little sports car, and my nerves are just so frayed that I, I can't take it. I'm home once a week, and the kids bug me to death. I see them for about 16 minutes, and I just go out of my mind. But I did a fun thing this last winter. Mogo and I, which is my wife, a great gal, I mean, a fantastic gal. This is a gal that had a governor's and then went to Sarah Lawrence for about an hour, over to Finch, tied up with Foxcroft for a while, lived in a Yale dorm for about two years. I mean, let's face it, I mean, this gal's been around. But I mean, she's still class. This is no, you know, bimbo. So, at any rate, I was just all tied up in a, inside as to what to give her for Christmas. So I bought her a $75,000 boat, and she turned right around and gave me the same thing. I mean, his and hers. And what we did was race down to Nassau, around the island, came back up, and the trophy was, loser gets the children for the holidays. <laughs> Winters appeared regularly on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon, and Johnny would hand him a series of hats and have him do characters. One such appearance included rancher and salmon catcher Buck Edelhofer, a character somewhat like Jonathan's farmer Elwood P. Suggins, but with a twist. I don't think I got your name. Didn't you? No, I didn't, sir. <laughs> Buck Edelhofer. I hope you don't mind either one of you if I chew. Uh, no, no, sir. Not a bit. Well, I always have. Ever since I was six years old, I always had a bunch of stuff in the right side of my face. Yeah, just like ball players, um, huh? Hmm? Just like ball players do that, huh? I suppose. <laughs> what has always been fun for me is to get a little curry dog and <clears throat> do that to them. <laughs> you get their attention right yes. away. They just like this. They can't see for about an hour. Yeah. Well, Mr. Ne Needlehopper, is it? Needlehopper. Needlehopper. Yeah, Buck. Where are you from, uh, Buck? Originally? Yeah, well, sure. Uh, I'm originally from Shawnee Run, Wyoming. Oh, I Working way into Chicago. Then I went up into Manitoba with a wheat and a machine, just a lot of machinery, cut wheat up there for a while. Got into salmon. And, uh, very serious. Very serious. <laughs> Don't Never you? laugh at a salmon person. I'm sorry. Drive a treble hook into your face, boy, I'll tell you. you uh, I know you're tight with this man, but you laugh at a man who's had his hands in cannery most of his life. That's another reason to chew. Anyway. You've, you've had a, uh, you've, you've wore many hats, as they say. I wore many hats, I think, in, I think in society a man has to wear many hats. That's true. 
Uh, I bet there's a senator tonight somewhere wearing a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, no, no. You, you, you're in the ranching business now? I'm in the ranching business now, and I have been for the last 22 years. Uh -huh. I come out of mining college when I was 50. <laughs> and, uh, I'm what you call a slow student, slow yeah. learner. Uh -huh. But uh, I just told him toward the end, give me some dynamite and we'll find the damn stuff. So <laughs> I come out of there, and there was a Miss uh, Lugridge. Miss Lugridge? Yeah, Miss uh, Allen Lugridge. A woman who had lost her legs, believe it or not, due to uh, uh, woodpeckers. That's you humorous, but, but sad. Well, it's sad, but it's good, and it was a, a conversation piece that got her here into the local paper, and that's all she ever wanted out of life, and uh, her legs looked wooden, apparently to the birds. Oh, I see. And uh, they ate her legs away. Oh, my God. And so I propped her up there in bed at the place, uh, and... Um, you know, a good set of pillars and a good zenith, and you're in business, so... Uh... Winters was a master at vocal sound effects and peppered all his routines, both as a club comic and on TV, with quirky noises. Here is Edward R. Murrow talking to Jonathan Winters' family from his show, Person to Person, back around 1960. Mrs. Winters, her daughter is still a bit young to appreciate your husband's humor, or is she? Well, I don't think she understands what he's saying, but she certainly loves his sound effects. Here are some more examples of Winter's sound effects. The first from his early days in the 1950s in a televised private eye routine, followed by the Lost Island Jungle routine from the Another Day, Another World album. I'm a private eye. Well, I kind of work for everybody, sort of a semi-private eye, if you know what I mean. Take, for instance, the other night I had to get down to Eddie's place. So what do I do? I jump on the subway. I get off the subway. I'm up the stairs and on the street. It's one of those foggy nights, you know what I mean? Real creepy-like. You can hear the frogs out croaking like crazy. kind of eerie, and before I know it, I'm right there in front of Eddie's place, so I drop in for a drink. Hi, Eddie. Wow, what a sense of humor. You haven't changed a bit. Mind if I pour? Good. Here's looking at you, Eddie. This one's for me. Suddenly I realized the time. It's 8.14.30. I gotta make a call. Watch the change, huh? Hello, Lily. It's me, doll. How you doing? Yeah. Uh, meet me down at Eddie's place, huh? Oh, the time? Oh, time doesn't make any difference. Say around 8.17.30. Okay, doll. I step out of the booth and suddenly there's a guy there with a violin case. Only this guy ain't no musician, not in that violin case. Oh, he's kind of an artist. You know, he wants to do murals on the wall, so he takes out this submachine gun and... I don't like his work, so I tell him. By this time, the heat's on. There are a lot of eyes on me, and I hail a cab out in the street. 
It's a nice stop. So I get in, and a real clean-cut guy turns to me and says, Where to, Mac? Say, let's go up the street a little ways and take a ride, huh? So we're riding along, it's a starry night, and suddenly there's the scent of cheap perfume in the air. That ten-cent stuff, but on her it smells real good. It's Lily. And I look over and I say, hi, doll. Gee, you look great. And she does. She says to me, I don't take that from anybody. We'll try it after dark. No, there are spiders and insects and snakes. Don't take the eye or you will perish. You know, and all that. Oh, big messages through all through this thing. Well, without going into a long thing, they jerk the eye out of the thing. There's all kinds of snakes, you know. Thing. All kinds of wild stuff. So they get down, they got the eye, and the old man comes on the scene. He's been, you know, lying on an army cot or something. <laughs> what are you doing, my sons? You have taken the great eye. Now you must pay for it. You will be thrown as human sacrifices over the cliff of the Fungawaiya Tanana. <laughs> What's that mean? means you're going to die. You can't touch us. I happen to be a commander in the United States Navy. T.S. Comedy didn't always come without a price for Jonathan Winters. In the late 1950s, he had what was called a nervous breakdown when he was performing in San Francisco. He climbed the mast of the sail ship Balclutha at Fisherman's Wharf and ended up at the psych ward of San Francisco General Hospital. From a San Francisco newspaper story at the time, in 1959, comedian Jonathan Winters reputedly climbed onto the Balclutha rigging and refused to come down, shouting to the police gathered below, Where am I from? I'm from outer space, man, outer space. I'm the man in the moon. I'd never been in the tank, should have been, uh... Never been in prison, probably should have been there, but I had a breakdown, and um, I turned myself in. It's the hardest thing I ever had to do. I hope I ever never have to do it again. But I went in, and I, uh, I had, no, not because of booze, not because of drugs, I just collapsed. However, to get out of character, which is sometimes hard to do, I frankly don't know who I am. <laughs> Furthermore, don't care. I felt that I was kind of a do-it-yourself guy. I wasn't, a, you know, uh, any kind of magic Christian or a Christian scientist, but I, I'd work this out. I could do it. And uh, I found out I couldn't, and uh, I had to get some help. There's two guys out there in white uniforms. Yes, we're going to the funny farm. I promise you that. <laughs> I did, I would say, you know, a, a hard, for me, eight months. I almost lost my sense of humor. Yeah, it ain't fun. Uh, just sitting looking outside of iron and the guys that have been in there will tell you and uh, I had to sit down and and get my act together but I came out I, I, I realized everything had to change for me and it wasn't it seemed to me more than a week before I got a call from Stanley Kramer 
about doing uh, uh, the truck driver and it's a mad, 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 mad world. I didn't think I'd be up to it, very honestly. I told, told my wife, I'm scared, and I was scared. I, I was fresh out of the hospital, and I, I didn't know at that time uh, whether I was up to doing a part such as that, and I worked on the picture for, for six months, and she said something that, uh, boy, she's been right uh, so many times uh, if you don't take this movie, and it's the biggest movie you'll ever do, whether you never do another one. The fact is, if you don't take this movie, you'll never work again, and I don't mean to... I lose faith in you and this and that, but uh, it just makes sense. And she was right. So it was a very difficult but great time because I, I finally opened up and I, I realized that I was back and I was in charge, you know, of certainly of myself and my mind and, and uh, doing lines and this and that. And uh, things came together fairly quickly. It's a Mad, 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 Mad World ended up being the biggest film role of his career along with his appearance in The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, filmed on our own North Coast. But he never stopped remembering that time on the funny farm, commenting further in the Winter's Painting documentary, Certifiably Jonathan, where he quoted his wife Eileen. Mrs. Winters, quote, Please stay in through the holidays. You've made some beautiful things in therapy. I can truthfully say today, at a long last, I'm happy with my insanity. But for my kind of insanity, the fact that I can't play everywhere, I understand that. I was told that a long time ago. The fact that I can play anywhere, do anything without being obscene, completely out of line, verbally, physically, the fact that I can do silly, little, crazy moments of insanity not have a net put over there. Winters had his own TV series three times. In 1956's The Jonathan Winters Show, a local New York City show, a national show by the same name from 1967 to 1969 on CBS, which Doug and I both watched frequently, and from 1972 to 1974 on the syndicated Wacky World of Jonathan Winters. At the end of his shows, he would do improv with his audiences, inspired by props or suggestions shouted out by the audience. They were invariably a kick and influenced many of us, including a young Robin Williams. In fact, Robin called on winners to join the cast of Mork and Mindy in 1981-82, where he appeared as William's son Mirth for the final season of the show. It was a partnership that was a blast from the beginning. Even when he was doing the show, it would take him 45 minutes to get from his car. They actually had to put it into his call time from when he got on the lot to when he got to the set because he would do characters for everybody on the way to the set. Even when we were shooting on the night of the day, camera night when they actually were filming, they used to have to put, like, they would run out, it'd be like machine gun crews at Guadalcanal, they'd run out of ammunition. Keep him going! When we do these 30 minute riffs in the 10 minute magazines, so these guys are like, Come on, get another one. Yeah, I can't. There's no more film. There ain't no more film. There ain't no more film. We can't. They're going to run out. Going to run out. And the best stuff was usually before they were running, before the cameras were on, where he would just be free, and then they would put on costumes. They would, they would still get good stuff, but the best stuff is when he was just open, you know, free to create without all the sets and all the other stuff. He and Jonathan are wonderful together. There are only a few guys that, very honestly, can really, that I've been able to go with. We did like this kind of a takeoff. It was like a thing where we, 
we were kind of because he was my son we were kind of playing it was like playing soldiers and all, but it became like an english war movie we were in the trenches, and I was Daddy, Daddy, they've kicked me out of Eden. I said, why? For wearing a dress. He said, oh, don't say dress, say gown. He and Robin were going on and on and on. Because Jonathan was just blowing the doors off, and it was really funny. And they seemed to inspire each other. It was fun. I mean, that was the best times, when you can go back and forth with him. Here are Williams and Winter sharing more laughs about their collaboration on The David Letterman Show. <laughs> You knew, you knew Jonathan was going to be? No, I walked in and went, you're alive! <laughs> you're alive! We miss you at the institution, Dublin. <laughs> look at us, look out here, we're just sitting around going, <laughs> Reagan's at home, Nancy. How are you, Pop? Well, hey, gosh, I hung on to that tailpiece of the airplane and I came in okay. <laughs> that scotch tape, you know, to, Ooh, face back like this. Wait, Coming man. in, final approach. How long did you guys work together on uh, the TV show? We worked one year and then one they bagged year. us. Yeah. And well. there's a man named Nielsen went, both of them, get rid of him. <laughs> well, you had, in all deference to you and Pam, they had four years. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Was it fun being the... Uh, oh, yeah, we used to yeah. drive them out, they'd lose all the film, and then we kept going. Yeah, yeah. A good time. Remember, Dad? <laughs> You know, just the fact that you'd come over here with... with Dad, did you sign those papers? <laughs> did you sign the papers? We need the house, Daddy. Did you sign the papers? Are these the ones? Huh? That's it, but you signed it upside down again. Uh, oh, I still love you. <laughs> Mother misses you. She found another man, a large black man. <laughs> there we go. If he, uh, if he's a please boy, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Jonathan. Thank you very much. Winters was also a visual artist who did a variety of paintings over time. He painted in a sort of surrealistic style well into his retirement. In 2003, he was the subject of an art mockumentary called Certifiably Jonathan by filmmaker Jim Pasternak. It's a fun film and stars a variety of comics, all having a good time extolling the art of Jonathan Winters. Frankly, some of his art reminds me of works by Magritte and Salvador Dali. I paint uh, strictly out of my head and just hope for the best. I tried and have tried, not only with my comedy, but certainly with my paintings and my artwork, tried to be different, tried to be original. And it's very hard because almost everything has been done so many times. This woman the other day asked me, she said, um, how much are your paintings? And I said, 15,000. She said, oh my God, 15,000? Yeah, the paintings are joke. The ideas were 15,000. Winters did cartoon voices throughout his career, including in a Flintstones film, and was coaxed out of retirement to voice Papa Smurf in The Smurfs. Ha <laughs> ha! Is a Smurf's butt blue? The first ever animated live-action Smurfs film. He returned for The Smurfs 2, which was his final film project. He died only nine days after he finished recording Papa's voice. A shaken Robin Williams posted... First he was my idol, then he was my mentor and amazing friend. I'll miss him huge. He was my comedy Buddha. Long live the Buddha. Ladies and gentlemen.
and gentlemen, and anyone else in TV line they let in here tonight, Jonathan Winters is the reason I became a comedian. I remember watching him with my father. And when he was on the Jack Parr show, Jonathan was playing a great white hunter, and Jack asked him, he said, what do you hunt? And Jonathan said, I hunt squirrels. And Jack said, how do you do that? He said, I aim for their little nuts. <laughs> Once upon a time, I called Jonathan my mentor, and he immediately corrected me. He said, please, he told me, I prefer idol. Jonathan Winters is my idol. He is a true pioneer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the honor of a lifetime to stand here and present the TV Land Pioneer Award to the man without whom I probably wouldn't be standing here, myself. The many, the one, Jonathan Winters! Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. We're here with uh, Ben Slay. Ben is a presently a diplomat with the United Nations. He's an economics expert on Eastern European economies and so forth. And Ben also is a North Coast native. He went to high school on the North Coast. Welcome, Ben Slay, to Snap Sessions. Well, thank you, Doug. It's uh, really great to be here. Yeah. Apropos your youth, uh, you went to school in Fort Bragg and graduated in 1976. What were your main interests back then? Um, And, you know, did you have a notion or an inkling you might end up working for the United Nations? No. Um, <laughs> I was probably just, you know, like anyone else in uh, Fort Bragg in the mid-1970s, uh, just, you know, trying to figure out what to do with myself, what to do with my life. I like sports. I like music. Uh, had a lot of great friends. And even after I ended up leaving the North Coast, uh, I was really glad to uh, to keep those those connections. I was interested at an early age in questions of politics and economics, capitalism versus socialism. And then later on, when I got to university, I was able to pursue those things in more detail. This was in Santa Cruz, UCSC. And that's kind of where the beginnings of the UN trajectory perhaps can be found. Yeah, I know you went off to UC Santa Cruz, which of course is a lovely campus. And um, it's also you know, it, it's also got this colli- uh, kind of collegial style, small colleges and so forth. And you ended up studying Russian at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, you you mentioned just now uh, that you were somewhat interested back then in, you know, capitalism versus communism type stuff. Tell us what got you interested in studying Russian uh, at that time. Well, I was indeed interested in capitalism versus communism, but I wanted to go beyond the rhetoric and the stereotypes, and especially, you know, communism itself in the 1970s, 1980s, as at least was presented in the United States, was a a gigantic stereotype. And I I wanted to go beyond that. I wanted to really understand it. I I kind of, you know, had the sense that it, it wasn't necessarily as depicted it was more complicated, perhaps, than some of the simplistic renditions that, that one got in the United States. But, but what was it really like? 
people who lived under communism, what were their lives like? How did the governance really work? Uh, what was it good at? What was it not good at? And then how to also sort of understand that in a given cultural context, because just if we take capitalism, American capitalism is different from German capitalism because Americans and Germans are different in America and Germany are different countries. And uh, even in the 1970s, I began to understand that uh, communism, quote unquote, or socialism in the Soviet Union was quite different than, say, Yugoslavia or Albania or China. And there's a variety of different social systems that humans have invented or have had imposed upon them, depending upon how you look at it. And I really wanted to understand this better. And so I realized at some point to really understand these things, I needed to go to these countries. And if one wanted to go to the Soviet Union, well, it really helped to speak the language. And so I started studying Russian at the college at UCSC. That's where I met my wife, Lisa, in first year Russian class. And uh, was really fortunate that uh, she was willing to stick with me through all the subsequent travels, jobs, and places that we went in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe and places like that. Too. So yeah. in some sense, you know, Russian and UCSC were kind of where it all started. I'm curious too, was there something about Russian itself that, that intrigued you? Besides, I know the Cold War connection, but when you got involved, you, uh, what did you study? What language had you studied in high school? And then compare that to when you got into the Russian class. I'm still proud of the fact that I won the ninth grade Spanish award at <laughs> Bragg Junior High School. <laughs> so that was. That and, and French, which I studied earlier, I'd had some some background in. But you know, I it's it's one thing to sort of you know take grammar school or, or middle school language. It's something else to take it intensive at a university and then go to a country and think of swim. You kind of have to speak it. So that's that's how it went for me with Russian. I have heard. Uh, I speak German. I have heard that there are five cases in Russian as compared to I think it's three or is it four in German. So it's a complicated language. So that, that notion, for example, in Latin, as I understand it, there's a vocative case. You can address a chair and the declension changes. Yes. There's, that, that stuff is also true of Russian, is it or not? Uh, that's true. There are six cases in, six. in Russian. It doesn't have a vocative, uh, but other Slavic languages, Polish, for example, has vocative. So Polish has seven, for example. Oh as does, I believe, Ukrainian. So, yeah, I mean, the whole idea of nouns changing their ending uh, depending upon their position in the sentence or adjectives changing their ending depending on the position in the sentence. This was quite a revelation, something very difficult for me to wrap my mind around when I was you know, 19, 20 years old trying to figure out the Russian stuff. But actually, once I, I mastered the alphabet, the Cyrillic alphabet in Russian, the rest of it wasn't so hard, as I discovered. Yeah. Now that that to me is a fascinating thing. The alphabet too. Cyrillic, does it how many letters does it have? I believe it has thirty something, thirty-two, oh. thirty-three. Oh my. Okay. So it's it's got us by maybe six six yeah. extra letters, yeah. huh? Yeah. It also has letters in it that don't make sounds themselves but influence the preceding letter. Soft sounds, hard sounds. Mm -hmm. Well, we will come back to more Slavic language stuff because I know you uh, speak Polish. It's also one of your favorite languages. 
presumably you understand a fair amount of Ukrainian and maybe Slovak or Czech or a few of the other Slavic tongues. We'll intersperse that because that to me is fascinating. Ken and I also grew up in the Cold War and I gravitated towards German. It took me a couple of swings through to get German right. So I'm the fact that you got Russian on the first go is pretty impressive. I also know you studied economics at UC Santa Cruz and this ends up also being linked to the Cold War. Your interest in economics, perhaps a few words in that regard, what got you interested in that? Well, I kind of figured out maybe when I was in high school or in my first year at UCSC that if I want to study history, I would read books. If I want to study political science, I would read journal articles and maybe you know political newspapers, etc. But if I wanted to really understand the economy and economics, I had to be trained in economics to think like an economist. There's a certain methodological approach, and really many different ones, but they all have to do essentially with deductive uh, reasoning, with constructing models where you can have simple assumptions and get simple results, but if you want more complicated, realistic results, you need more complicated assumptions, and then be able to put that into uh, rigorous mathematical logical frameworks to really understand cause and effect relationships. And I, I decided that, that it was important to be able to do that. It was important to be able to, to understand the way economists talk about the economy, about societies, about policy, their narratives, where this came from, what the strengths of this approach is, but also what the weaknesses are. Yeah. For me, I know they, the nickname, of course, is the dismal science. And um, I say I cast no aspersions against you, Mr. Slay, I promise. <laughs> I took a, a class at Cal. Um, it was macroeconomics. And I, I survived with a B. And I thought to myself, maybe the handwriting was on the wall. But since I studied history, I knew I had to have some grounding in econ. And you went on then from Santa Cruz. You ended up at grad school in Indiana. So you knew that you wanted to head into academia at that point, or did you just want to go to grad school? Um, I, I thought grad school would give me, uh, especially doing a PhD in economics, would give me a lot of different opportunities. Certainly academia was one, but working in policy or development would be another. Uh, working possibly in business in the private sector would be a third. There are all of these different possibilities that started out. Uh, and then it seemed natural to stick with academia. I was doing some teaching of economics principles while I was at Indiana. And that sort of led to, I like teaching, it sort of uh, stuck with me, so to speak. That sort of led to an academic career, which indeed was my first profession, so to speak. After I got my PhD, I spent about 10 years teaching economics and Russian studies at schools back east. But in the back of my mind, I knew there were other things that I could do as well. I managed to combine at least some of them like consulting, for example, a little bit on the side when I was uh, an academic. So you know, that was one of the good things about studying economics, as well as being a dismal scientist. Yeah. Now, 
before we get there, there is a, a wonderful part of your CV. It says, I went off to grad school, Indiana, that fall, but I spent much of the next decade bumping around Eastern Europe. I spent a lot of time in Poland, Hungary, and the USSR, watching communism decompose and then collapse. Now, this, of course, was that era when Gorbachev was opening up uh, Glasnost to Perestroika and so forth. I'm fascinated because at the time, in 1988-89, my partner and I tried to get a visa to be in the Soviet Union to coach him. Improv. And we got a visa, except they hadn't finalized it. So we were in Warsaw trying to get into the Soviet Union in 1989-90. I think it was spring of 90. We didn't make it. But here you are, presumably going from train station to train station, singing Russian and Ukrainian folk songs. <laughs> How did you do that? Tell us, this has to be something you have to describe for us. You're bumping around the Eastern Europe at this time. Well, I, I got there on the basis of various academic fellowships and university exchanges, like uh, Fulbright, for example. I had Fulbright fellowships to study and collect research for my dissertation, my PhD dissertation in Poland and Hungary. And I managed to spend three years in those countries doing that. See, lots of my colleagues in my cohort at Indiana in grad school just wanted to finish their degrees as quickly as possible and get on with the rest of their life. Whereas I saw studying economics and Eastern European studies as an opportunity to go to these places and then just hang out, learn the languages, drink vodka, well, some of that anyway, um, meet, meet <laughs> people and, and really understand what life is like. Because, you know, I, I lived for a year in a dormitory in Warsaw with Polish students, you know, me and two other Polish kids in a room. And uh, that's a, a great way to learn a lot of things about the language, about the society, the culture, about yourself was also really important for me because I understood much more about my own country, about the United States, by being outside of it and being able to contrast it so directly and indirectly with something else and someplace else. So when I talked about bumping around from country to country, it was within the context of academic exchanges that got me the visa, got me there, and then allowed me to sort of, you know, figure it out as I went. I know, you know, a lot of things were restricted then, but were you able to go and visit people at their houses? Were you able to go to the, say, those Polish roommates? Were you able to go to their villages or cities and visit their families and so forth? Yes, it was really quite different. It depended on where you were. But in the 1980s in Poland, it was a very open society. And that openness was actually sort of the basis, the bedrock for the political opposition to communism that gave rise to solidarity, and then ultimately caused communism or socialism or whatever you want to call it there to collapse in the late 1980s. So yeah, I mean, that sounds very, very romantic and exciting, but there were difficulties as well. I mean, um, most Poles then were incredibly pro-American, but had never seen an American. And so when I would go with my roommates to the little towns, you know, in central Poland, you know, the, the vodka would come out and I'd have to drink vast amounts the Polish-American friendship, this, that, and, you know, my liver barely survived the two years I lived in Poland, so. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, but when I've talked to you on other occasions, too, you also describe with wonderful romanticism how much you enjoyed Poland and how much you enjoyed the culture and uh, the music, etc. It strikes me that there's a special place about Poland, even more so than you have for Russia. Yeah. Do you still feel that way? That 
I do. I mean, I mean, obviously, all of these countries and cultures are are wonderful in, in, in different ways. But for me, Poland was special because it was the, the first place where I ever really lived abroad. It was also the place where Lisa and I spent the first year after we were married and sort of had this honeymoon that was a whole year, kind of had to share that adventure together. That was great. So, and it was also interesting for me to live in a country that was so pro-American where people knew in so many ways so little about the United States and to try to kind of, you know, parse out which of the stereotypes and understandings of the U.S. sort of made sense, maybe which ones didn't, and how I would go about gently, you know, popping people's bubbles uh, or whether it was even, even worth it. I also understood more about the immigrant experience and why so many people were willing to leave places like Poland or Ireland or Germany or wherever, and, you know, leave it all behind and, and come to the United States with little more than, you know, the clothes they had on their back and maybe a wad full of cash in their sock, because that's really an important part of the roots of our country. And it's one thing to read about that, something else to experience that and see people who came from cultures that, while they were proud of their own country, also contributed to making the United States what it was. Yeah. It also strikes me as something that gives you a future of grounding at the time for a future in the UN because you end up being somewhat simpatico with people's experiences. And since you've done so much work in the former Soviet Union, but it gives you a notion about uh, what these cultures are like, having spent time and, and working. I've always thought that if you want to get to know a place, going and visiting is wonderful. But if you work there or if you study there, you get to know human beings. And it strikes me that that's a grounding you've been able to have in your time in Eastern Europe. No, I fully agree. You don't really understand the country unless you've lived in it and shared the joys and frustrations of the people there. Now, obviously, as a foreigner, you could, that only goes so far. and You'll always be different. But still... Uh, you know, reading about it in books or just going there for a few days or weeks, even in being in a hotel or maybe even an apartment, but not really living day to day for an extended period of time. It's not quite the same thing. Now, upon returning to the United States, uh, you managed to get yourself into academia. I say that facetiously because obviously you've got a lot on the ball. And it says, on your CV, you worked mostly at liberal arts colleges in New England. I know you were teaching some aspect of economics. I'm assuming about, East, in fact, your uh, published works would indicate Eastern Europe. Tell us about your time in academia, at least some of it, and some of your favorite teaching gigs. I know you taught at Georgetown, at, I think at Bates College. It's in Maine, I think. Yeah, give us some background, because some of these are very liberal arts colleges. Yeah. Well, I was fortunate that I, I taught in some really great liberal arts colleges and had a lot of really great undergraduate students. And I also had, at later dates, adjunct teaching positions in, in D.C. at Georgetown, for example. I really appreciated teaching, interacting with young people who really were serious about learning. And at places like Bates and Middlebury College, uh, where I also taught, there were lots of people like this. 
And so there is really a sense of helping people to become who they could be or, or starting that process or contributing to it at a critical moment. It was also very exciting to be able to do research on topics that interested me. And in the 1990s, when I was an academic, there were so many interesting research questions about you know, what caused socialism to collapse, how is the transition towards markets and democracy going, what explains different courses of transition, and that kind of thing was, was very interesting as well. But ultimately, there's more to life than, than teaching, and uh, I got a little bit tired of the petty politics of academia, saw that there were other things that uh, I could do, and uh, although I've uh, I still value the opportunity to teach and interact with young people when I can. It didn't become, that was my first career, but it wasn't my uh, my whole life, so to speak. You did do some writing on the transition from communism to capitalism. You mentioned uh, the Polish economy. You've actually written a book about the Polish economy, crisis reform and transformation, and the role of international financial institutions in Central and Eastern Europe. These are sort of specific books about Eastern European economies. That must have been of value w w in your present position and um, with studying up on the way these economies transitioned to the European Union later. At the time, were you a consulted person with regard to these things? Did people call you up and say, Mr. Slay or Dr. Slay, we need to talk to you about aspects of this? Give us some background on these era of book writing and the, the knowledge base that you had about this with regard to this. Well, in the 1980s, there were basically three socialist countries that were relatively open, and it was possible to talk to people and to do um, sort of relatively open type research. And these were Poland, Hungary, and Yugoslavia. So I was really interested in the dynamics of system change because you know, already in the 1980s, socialism in Yugoslavia had evolved significantly away from where it began in the 19, late 40s and 50s, according to, for lack of a better term, the, the Soviet model. And in Poland and Hungary in the 1980s, there were moves in that direction, but it was also apparent that there were real obstacles and real barriers to introducing markets into an economic system where all of the means of production, so to speak, all of the factories, the land, the capital is owned by the state. So how do you do that? Uh, how do you have competition when all of the companies are owned by the state? And when there's not, how do you have competition in the economy when there's not competition in the political sphere with different political parties and different political options competing really for, in some sense, popular uh, le legitimacy? And this is what my dissertation, my PhD dissertation was about at Indiana. And I was fortunate that I defended it right before essentially the Berlin Wall fell and socialism, communism collapsed in Eastern Europe. And so I had a lot of insights into why this happened and what might happen next. And that was really a bit of good luck for my professional development. So students were interested in my courses. They wanted to study this. Uh, other faculty, uh, some of them at least, wanted to understand how you know the, the standard tools of economics and markets, competition, this sort of thing, played out in these kinds of nascent emerging market uh, contexts. And there were other uh, players, be it these banks or companies or government institutions or international organizations 
that were interested in consultancies and hiring me as a consultant on a part-time basis on the basis of this research. And so it was coming from my dissertation and the research that I did and the analytical orientation that I developed that both gave me something to say in the classroom, but then also allowed me to develop skills and services, if you like, that made me of interest to uh, other institutions outside of academia. And this leads us to uh, your second career, which uh, is in consulting. Because you were considered a a senior economist uh, with specializing in uh, the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, during this period in the late 90s and early 2000s, you did pick up consulting work. What is it, I, you know, you hear so much about consultants, you know, what, what kind of assignments would you get uh, as a consultant with Eastern European economies? Well, of course, there's lots of different types of consultants, uh, almost as many as there are jokes about consultants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the job in the consultancy that I had in the late 90s and early years of the new millennium was as a senior economist working in an economics research consultancy based in Washington that focused solely on the economies of the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. So I sort of moved from teaching economics and uh, about the economics of these countries to helping the U.S. government, helping banks, multinational companies, um, governments from some other countries like the U.K., the U.N., and others to do business, develop uh, better policies, do programming. This essentially had both a sort of standard analytical focus that was based upon review of data and trends in these countries uh, and doing forecasting for what was happening with GDP, the balance of payments, political risks, but it also meant working on specific projects. So for example, uh, I helped do due diligence for the uh, purchase of a Polish telecommunications uh, company by an investment bank in uh, the late 90s that ultimately led to big increases in the availability of essentially telecommunication services, so phones, faxes, uh, and then subsequently internet access all across Poland, which was you know, kind of interesting. So um, there, was, there was that sort of thing, but it was, it was actually mostly analytical work, doing forecasting, putting together forecasting books, discussing them with our clients, and you know, going to conferences and explaining our take on Russia, our take on Poland. Uh, where it's going, what the risks are, how the politics and economics come together. Would these countries join the European Union? What does this look like? When might it happen? These sorts of things. Yeah, and it's an interesting uh, aspect because it also connects you with the international um, diplomacy realm, which is where you end up. In 2001, you got a job working at the UN, the United Nations, of course, and a new capacity. And for our audience, I just want to point out, because a lot of Americans are lacking in knowledge about the UN at basic level, but let's remember, in 1945, the United Nations came together, uh, the big five victors in World War II, uh, Soviet Union, United States, France, Britain, uh, UK, and uh, China were the so-called Big Five. And then they put together as many nations as they could from the ashes of World War II to uh, become a governing body for the world. 
and started in San Francisco, the first uh, UN conference, and then the headquarters came in New York. And for many years, the UN, there was lots of the UN Human Rights Declaration in 1948, helped by Eleanor Roosevelt, and all kinds of hopes were, were vested in the UN. And of course, after a while, there's been, you know, bitter fighting over this or that aspect of it. But the UN was seen as at least one body that had everybody in it. And uh, so you got a job working there. It's a fascinating thing. You worked at the Bratislava Regional Center from 2001 to 2008. Later on, you'll go to Istanbul. But Bratislava is in Slovakia, and it's right across the river from Vienna, which, of course, is a, a gorgeous city. And um, for years, you worked on this. And um, we need to know about this job, how it came about, and how your background in Slavic languages helped you out with this job. Well, okay, I guess just very briefly on the UN, you know, I, in some sense, I don't blame Americans for not fully understanding the UN because after having worked in it for 20 years, I still don't fully understand it myself. <laughs> yeah. I think if you really want, in very simplistic terms, to understand it, you should understand that there's three different kinds of UN. First of all, there's the big politics, the Security Council, the Russians and the Americans and the Chinese arguing. And unless they agree, nothing gets done and they don't usually agree. And so, okay, and this is very frustrating and it doesn't represent the best side of the UN. The other extreme are the people who are the real heroes of the UN. These are the people who there's an earthquake, there's a tsunami, there's a disaster, and they're on the next plane halfway around the world and they go there. And they, they work 24-7 for as long as it takes to get people out of harm's way. And there are, there are no better people in the world than the people who do that. And that also is the UN. And then there's a sort of piece of the UN that's in the middle, which is kind of the, the bureaucrats, the development bureaucracies, the people who do programs and projects, all agreed upon, of course, by the governments, uh, both that fund these and in the countries that the projects and programs are done. And that's that's kind of what I do. And, you know, I'm not the big politics and I'm not the hero that goes to, you know, make things better for people after an earthquake or a tsunami. I'm kind of in that middle ground. I, I think that's a useful way maybe to, to understand what the UN actually is. At least that's kind of the percep perception that's emerged for me after having worked in it for, for 20 years. Now, I got into the UN because I made a lot of connections in various countries, networks, links of various sorts when I was in academia and when I was working in consultancy. And uh, one thing led to another, and a, a colleague of mine became an assistant secretary general in charge of programming for the UN development program in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. And when he joined, he asked me to take over management of this resource center, as he described it, in Bratislava, which was supposed to sort of be the internal consultancy for the UN development program for Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. That would do analytical work, design multi-country programs, provide uh, effectively consultancy support for people working in these countries at our country offices in Russia, Ukraine, Serbia, Poland, et cetera. And it was sort of like the natural progression for me because in academia, I taught students about what these places are 
Then when I was a consultant, I advised the U.S. government and um, businesses about how to advance the national interest or how to make money in these countries. And then when I joined the U.N., I had the chance to say, okay, well, what can we really do to make things better for the people in these countries? And it sort of represented kind of both a natural next step, but also maybe something that had higher aspirations associated with it. It it always seemed to me like a fascinating job. And you effectively continued at least doing some of that job when you moved to Istanbul. Is that correct? And that was about 2008 or 2009. You and Lisa moved there. You still did a lot of traveling. In fact, I believe you came to Christine and my wedding in 2012. You were the furthest traveled person because you had gotten on a plane in one of the uh, Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan or something, flown to Europe and then flown to New York and then flown to San Francisco and gotten up to Mendocino for the wedding. You won the award, Ben Slay. And so typical for your job then was doing a lot of traveling, helping people manage economic realities in these countries. Can you give us some some sort of nitty gritties, sort of what would be typical for your job at that time? The piece of the UN that I work in is the UN Development Program, helping countries to develop their economies, their political systems, society, whatever, to really, if you like, realize or implement the aspirations of the UN Charter and the Declaration on Human Rights that, that, you, that you mentioned. That's the, the, the goal. In practice, the way this piece of the UN works is we have offices, so-called country offices, in developing countries. So not in the US or Germany or France, but in Serbia, Ukraine, uh, Turkey, developing countries. And there's not a lot of expertise, of thematic expertise in these offices. Essentially, these offices have to pay for themselves uh, and they, they pay for themselves through doing projects, which means that these offices are full of project managers and people who provide Uh, Do you like administrative support to projects? So people doing human resources, finance, logistics, whatever. But if the project that the government asked them to do is on, say, sustainable energy, or is on human rights, or is on gender equality, then there's not going to be a lot of expertise in those offices, people who know about these things. So rather than try to find the money to put a wide variety of experts in all of these areas in all of the UN development programs offices, they set up regional centers like the one in Bratislava, where there would be experts in all of these things. And then their job was to, and still is, to go to these countries to meet the needs. So if our office in, say, Ukraine needs someone on sustainable energy, rather than try to find uh, someone, or in addition to hiring, say, a local consultant, who might know about this in Ukraine, but not in other countries, uh, our country office would turn to the experts on sustainable energy in the regional center in Bratislava or Istanbul or wherever that would know about solar and wind and uh, biomass, not only in Ukraine, but in Russia and Germany and the States and Turkey and France and China, wherever, and can bring that global perspective. So it's that sort of internal consultancy function that these centers represented. And of course, to do this, you have to travel. So, you know, one week it's Kyrgyzstan, the next week it's Serbia, the next week it's it's Ukraine. And at first it was very glamorous and exciting. It got kind of old after a while. And now 
I just really enjoy being home uh, and not having to do all that traveling. But for someone, you know, who, well, younger than I am now, it was a, a really a great opportunity. Yeah. And it still strikes me as being a fascinating job. I can't help but ask, have you visited each and every Stan? Um, I, I ask because I, I was I went to a map before I said I have to ask our friend Ben, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and of course there's Afghanistan, which never was part of the Soviet Union. All of these other stands were part of the Soviet Union, right? And they had Russian as their lingua franca, I guess. So when you visited each of the stands, is you're going and you're speaking in Russian the entire time and doing your diplomatic work that way? Wow. Yeah, that's right. No, Afghanistan and Pakistan oh, yeah. are the two stands I've never been in because they were not part of the Soviet Union. And I've never worked on these countries. And it's not part of the part of the UN that I, I, I work in. The five stands that you mentioned, they're enough. Yeah. <laughs> they're interesting places. I've really had some great times, met many great people, and I've learned a lot. These these are, are ancient societies, but new states that have represent this fascinating combination of Turkic, Persian, Russian, oftentimes uh, Chinese culture, and uh, are interested in the West and the US, but only to a certain point because they've increasingly understood that our experience is relevant in some ways and perhaps not so relevant in others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've hit, you've been in each one of them then. Yeah. Many times. Yeah, there you go. I It's just fascinating to me. And I have to ask the question, I know this is a kind of a knuckleheaded question, do you have a favorite Stan? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's like asking the father to pick his favorite child, right? Um, but but if, if push comes to shove, I would have to say that Kyrgyzstan is my favorite. Not because it's the happiest or the most successful, but the Kyrgyz are, people are really something. Of, of the Central Asians, the Kyrgyz are the ones who are willing to stand up and say, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. Hmm. And they're the ones who, who throw out their presidents when the presidents, you know, rob the country seven ways from Sunday, which unfortunately happens in that part of the world too often. And I really respect them for that because in, in my unfortunate experience, there are too many countries in which, you know, the, the leaders rob the country seven ways from Sunday and without consequences. The people don't stand up and force them to be accountable for what they do. And the Kyrgyz do. And I appreciate them for that reason. It's also an immensely beautiful country, incredible mountains, all of Central Asia is immensely beautiful. So, you know, there's there's wonderful things that you can say about all of these places. You should go. I would very much like to. Uh, one of the difficulties of the COVID time, of course, I love to travel. I've spent a lot of time in Europe. In fact, I figured out uh, until, the, until COVID of my adult life, I've spent about one out of six days living in Europe. And uh, suddenly have that snipped off like this, that's... Uh, Annoying at best. So I have to ask you another UN question. You've been there around 20 years now, you mentioned, and you've worked under a variety of UN secretary generals. And for those who need reminding, I believe the ones during the Ben Slay uh, interregnum here are Kofi Annan, Ban Ki-moon, and now Antonio Guterres. Was there another one I forgot? And uh, if not, I would just a short 
perhaps a paragraph each of the your your notions about these guys. Just curious because I was fascinated by I thought Kofi Annan would have made a great president of the world. Like if aliens had visited us and they had met Kofi Annan, the aliens would have taken us seriously. Whereas if they had met Donald Trump, maybe not so much. But I, I have to ask about those three uh you those three bosses you had. How shall I put this? First of all I mean, they weren't really my bosses uh, any more than, you know, for someone who works for the U.S. government, uh, Joe Biden is their boss. I mean, there's, you know, a whole hierarchy between where you are and where the secretary general is. But but I know what you mean. I completely agree with you about Kofi Annan. Uh, he, He was, in my view, he was a great secretary general. And I didn't work for the U.N., so I can't obviously personally speak to people like Dalek Hammarskjöld and, and other uh, original uh, secretaries general, you know, back in the founding days. But I, I think in many ways Kofi Annan was was the best secretary general because he he changed the organization and modernized it and made it possible for it to do things that it could never have done otherwise. I mean, just to give you one example, before Kofi Annan became the UN secretary general, the UN was all about governments. It was a place for governments to meet, to negotiate, argue, position, pontificate, whatever. As if governments were the only important actor in the world. Now, of course, there's businesses and there's various ways businesses interact with governments, etc. But what Kofi Annan did that was really important was he brought civil society to the UN. He brought NGOs. So he turned the UN into a platform for anyone who had the wherewithal to form an NGO, make a difference, and connect with people in other places and other countries doing the same thing. And this this really makes it possible to talk about, for example, thinking globally but acting locally, which is you know, one of the key themes of sustainable development. You can't act locally if you don't have local NGOs, if you don't have local you know, groups of people that can take principles that we all agree with and actually turn them into realities that make people's lives better. And Kofi Annan did understand that and brought the NGOs to the UN, set up NGO fora that would be on almost the same footing as governments in the UN and created made the UNAA uh, a sounding board, a soapbox, and a platform for NGOs like Amnesty International, Greenpeace, whoever it might be, to uh, to speak to the peoples of the world, not necessarily only through their governments. And I think as time goes on, uh, and as tech develops further, and as people's ability to connect becomes more and more strong and dense, shall we say, governments become, although they're obviously critical, become less and less important. And people's ability to connect with other people, no matter where they are, through organizations that help facilitate a meeting of the minds and hearts. You know, this is what development and social change is all about. And Kofi Annan really understood that and brought that to the UN. So I think in the long run, that's what he'll be most remembered for. And it's certainly what impressed me very much about him. Great. You know, it's, I'm, you really put it together well. I, I had that sense when he was around, and um, I don't have anything against any of the other guys, but he just seemed like, you know, he just seemed a man for the moment. 
And it's interesting to hear your background on that as well. As much as any family I know, I think you um, and Lisa and Amy have been international world citizens. I really, I, I love that ab about your lives. And I think it's a very interesting thing. I think it's beneficial to uh, overcome nationalism. And I think nationalism has been a graveyard over time. Perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about your feelings about, you know, world citizenry and um, how it's benefited you and your family and uh, how, if you'd recommend that. Well, I think you know, these are very complicated issues and different people understand them very differently. I think no one likes nationalism that leads to conflict that leads to ugly exclusion, or very few people do, let's put it that way. But at the same time, the richness of culture in the world is reflected in different senses of identity, different languages, different senses of belonging, and national identity is a huge part of that. What, what I don't like is national identity that says, I belong to Tribe X and we're better than everyone else and you, everyone else can just go jump in the lake. It's rather through this sense of national identity, I am able to contribute something to the global commons and the global community and global culture that ultimately makes the commons, the community and culture richer and better without necessarily diminishing the value of anyone else's identity or, or culture. And of course, how you separate the good from the bad in doing this is very difficult. And things that might make sense in one context really won't make sense in another. I mean, for example, in, in the 1980s when I lived in Poland, Polish nationalism, which in a lot of ways is very conservative and you know Catholic and not the kinds of nationalism that people in the left in the U.S. would necessarily identify, was in some ways nonetheless extremely powerful and attractive because without it, Poland would have become a republic of the Soviet Union and Polish national identity would have been destroyed. And you can say you know some of the same things about the identity of indigenous peoples in the United States. It's important that we cherish what is left or what has emerged from their identity, because it's almost been destroyed and oftentimes has been destroyed. And to be against nationalism that somehow denigrates or misses the importance of the contribution that comes from that is also, I, I think, a mistake, something to be avoided. So it's like you know, so many other things in social sciences, in certain circumstances, national identity, national belonging makes good sense and is good not only for people in the group, but for others. But in other cases, it's disastrous and disastrous for everyone, including the people that propagate uh, these national nationalist uh, identities and ideas. So you kind of have to unpack it and look at the context and think about the consequences of what it is that we're actually trying to do, what it is we're actually trying to say. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, it was a wonderful response talking about the importance of internationalism and also aspects of nationalism that help people and that's great now you'll you have a couple more years before you're entertaining retirement from the united nations or uh... yes that's right i have about two more years until i hit my expiration date and i forced to retire yes but i hope to still be involved and do consulting and a few things uh with the un on the side 
if that works out. That's great. Now, I want to ask you, uh, Ben, before we move to the end here, you talked to us about singing. Over time, I must say, Dr. Slay has sang some beautiful Eastern European folk songs in my presence. And so uh, we asked if he might be able to sing one here today. And he has chosen a Ukrainian number. So I would first of all like to, before Ben goes and grabs his guitar, which he'll play, we will add this on to the podcast for sure. But I just want to thank you, Ben Slave, for talking with us at Snap Sessions. You're our first diplomat we've had a chance to interview. It's been wonderful to talk to you. And we've also learned a lot about the United Nations, which is great to hear. So thank you very much, Ben, for being with Snap Sessions. Well, thank you, Doug. I love Snap Sessions. It's, it's really great. That, to have this opportunity to reconnect with you and other people from the Mendocino Coast, uh, North Coast. Whenever I get something in my email, a new snapshot session says, oh, great, you know, my, uh, my day just improved. So I'm really glad that I can make a small contribution to the great work that you and your friends and colleagues do. So really, thank you. Thanks, Ben. This is a song uh, that's called Ivanku, Ivanku. It's a traditional folk song of Western Ukraine. I've actually seen it described also as a Ruthenian song and a Slovak song, but it's sung in Ukrainian. And it's, we talked about the different cases the Slavic languages have. Uh, Ivanko is the vocative case of Ivanko. It's a woman calling out to her Ivanko, uh, who she's in love with, and how she's looking forward to meeting him that evening when they're going to go to the dance together. And then after that, after the dance, well, who knows? So that's that's basically it. My Ukrainian is not great. So if anyone who knows Ukrainian actually ha- happens to see this, I apologize for my bad accent. And I'm not sure how my voice is going to go, especially after having talked so much. So just bear with me.
здравствуй, ах, здравствуй, мамаша. Здоровье, отец мой, и брат. Отец твой давно уж к могиле Землёю серую зари. Ах, брат твой в далёкой Сибири, Давно кандалами звени. По диким стенам Забайкая, Где золото роют в корах. Бродяга судьбу Клейная Вощился с мой На Thanks to our activist of the show, Ben Slay. Our production team includes tech meister Marshall Brown, jack-of-all-trades Ken Krause, writer-interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer, Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes.